one thing that's so important to so many people is the idea that they're a nice person. Um, that's so central to not everyone in the book, but to, and not everyone in the world, but a lot of people. And so I thought, okay, well, how does this work? This story that they tell themselves of being a nice person, but at the same time, just, you know, slightly tilting towards letting someone who's already vulnerable be more vulnerable. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. This episode of Thresholds is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the world. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover. And each and every film is hand-selected. It's like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. Something I particularly love about Mubi is the way that they create collections of films, like highlights from past years of the Cannes Film Festival, or films that emphasize the history of French feminist filmmaking. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash thresholds. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash thresholds for a whole month of great cinema for free. Be sure to check what's streaming in your area. I tend to think of Rivka Galchin as an unusually prolific and versatile writer. She's the author of two novels, a collection of short stories, a book of short nonfiction about parenting called Little Labors. She's also a staff writer for The New Yorker, where she writes and reports on science and medicine and culture. So I was surprised when she came to talk about all the projects and pieces she never finishes, how hard it is for her to stay in love with an idea, and how often she throws projects away. This was not the case with her most recent novel, Everyone Knows Your Mother is a Witch, which she says came out in a big love affair style rush. It's a novel set in 17th century Germany about a woman accused of witchcraft based on the life of Katharina Kepler, Johannes Kepler's mother. It's a great novel, so funny and searing, and it was a pleasure to both read it and to get to talk to Rivka about it. Hope you enjoy. I realized that for me, the threshold was and here I hesitated. I was like, is it the trash or is it the garbage? The threshold uh or the discard pile. The threshold was is for me in in writing in general, I guess, is just um almost like to get to the end before I want to throw something away. Cause that's so my instinct is to not finish a project. I'll sort of start it high hopes and lots of ideas and what seems like more than could possibly fit into something. And then I find that in a funny way, if I don't have velocity on my side, I myself like undergo too many changes to have the same interest. Because I, I feel like to write something, you know, to read something, you have to be interested for like four hours, but to write something, you have to be interested for a year or a few years. And so that's like my threshold really is Kind of, kind of trying is 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 to not throw something away to finish something fast enough that I want to sort of 
what is it? Swipe right versus swipe left. <laughs> that's, uh... Oh, that's amazing. So wait, how, I mean, how at risk are your projects generally? Like proportionately speaking, how often do you have velocity on your side and make it all the way through versus um, succumbing to the impulse to jettison something and move on? Yeah, I, I think I have like... Um... And this isn't the way I want to write. This is not the writer I want to be. Um, but I'd say I have a like a 15% survival rate. Um, wow. So it's like, yeah, it's sort of like tomato plants. I and mean, they're just eating each other. <laughs> I don't know what it is. I always wanted to be like this sort of writer who, um, one writer I really love is Cesar Ira. And he has this observation where he's he was actually talking about revision and he was saying like who do I think I am that like I write it as one person but suddenly I become Borges when I'm revising it and it's going to be sort of amazing <laughs> so he just sort of finishes it and I, I I admire that idea of just not even knowing if it's good or not like sort of who is the writer to say just see what it is and let it go that's always the writer I wanted to be but somehow that's not the writer um that's not the writer I've turned out to be. When in the process do you tend, is it like a time marker? Like, oh, after about a year, if I'm not done, I start to lose steam? Or is it at a certain point in the project as you imagine it, that things start to slow down or you start to feel tempted to, to move on? I think for me, it's usually been not so much a time marker as a life, like a life change marker, but those life changes could be quite, modest or even quite dramatic but but they sort of will surprise me so you know I was like working on something before I had my child and then once I had her everything I had been working on didn't just didn't hold my interest in the same way it's not that it was inherently invaluable it was that I was no longer the person who who could do that project um or I mean in after the election or even in the run-up to the vote in the run-up to the election um the 2016 one I just again it was just like my inner life had changed so dramatically that what I what could hold my interest had shifted so I had to sort of I kind of like abandoned what I was working on um so I feel like those are sort of more dramatic examples but sometimes it's smaller, like, uh, it's just so I feel like the rate of change of personhood. So I kind of feel like I have to outpace that. Not that I'm like basically the same I was when I was four years old, but you know, you're, it's almost like you go through a phase. I remember my daughter went this through a blueberry eating phase, you know, where she could eat like three tins of it a day and then it's just over. (laughs) So I feel like it's kind of like her food interests, but on the page. (laughs) Do you, can you feel it coming on and do you try to like rush to see if you could to kind of save the interest? Yeah, that would be really good. Um, I feel like I, I, I feel like I'm always like a step behind, um, myself. So usually I just think it's a series of kind of blah days or blah weeks, but that eventually catch up and realize I've like gone through that blueberry phase and I'm not, I'm not interested in blueberries anymore right. or whatever like it might now be. now you're into pickles. Exactly. Exactly. It's sort of potato chip and lemonade phase and there's nothing I can do about it. 
Um, so when did you get into a witch phase? Yeah, you know, um, it came to me like, it really was like, you know, that I'll sometimes they'll describe uh, love as like being thunderstruck. So it was definitely like a thunderstruck moment because I actually was not um, reading about witches. In fact, years ago, I sort of was at a residency where by chance I was sort of like got to be, um, have dinner often with this um, professor emeritus, Eric Middlefort, who's, you know, basically the genius of one of several geniuses of witches, but it's done all sorts of kind of seminal work in witches. And at the time I just thought, I mean, I thought he was like a wonderful guy, but I thought just what a weird, strange Madison, Wisconsin kind of thing this guy is into. Like it was so not my, <laughs> not my set of interests, but I was actually going through a scientific biography phase. I found it like very, like the, what held my reading attention was uh, reading the biographies of scientists. I don't know why. I mean, one reason was that it was like reading about history, but through this certain lens, because so many of them were kind of bullied around by politics or history, whether it was, you know, the French Revolution or World War II, or they're always sort of getting... um dramatically bumped around and yet have this kind of interesting through line in their life. So I was, that's what I was um, reading a lot of. And I came to, I really wanted to find a great biography of Johannes Kepler because I was interested in learning more about him. And it's a funny thing. I mean, Kepler is uh, a Titanic figure, but there's really not like, a great English language biography of him. There's this sort of kind of um, foundational kind of 1950s German language biography that's been translated. Um, but there wasn't like a, a modern sensibility biography. And he, I don't know. So I kept like looking for like more to read about Kepler. And what there was, was this um, book by the scholar Ulinka Rublak, um, The Astronomer and the Witch. And it was not so much about Kepler. Um, it was really about the witch trial that his mother went through, though, of course, there was a lot in there about, about Kepler. So when I read it, really just because I couldn't find anything better <laughs> to read about the life of Kepler, I was seized. I was absolutely seized. And kind of overwhelmed with emotion. I couldn't quite pinpoint why that story was so powerful for me and so felt so personal. Um, but it but it did, and I dropped everything um, and just started, you know, reading about the 30 Years War and re- trying to read about her, what, you know, her time period learn more about her, but also learn more um, around her. There was sort of nothing else that interested me. I was really in like the best way and I sort of like waiting to ha- feel that way again. And I'm sure I will one day, but I don't feel that way right now. I would just like anything that even barely touched on that area was suddenly, you know, incredibly gripping. Like there's like several wonderful lives of Martin Luther, Martin Luther biographies. And that's, you know, almost 100 years before her, but 
so informed her life. Everything was like suddenly the world was kind of like lit up in a different way. So what sort of stuck out or seemed interesting was anything that kind of overlapped with her world. What do you think it was about her that that provoked this love? I've thought about that a little bit. I mean, I thought, you know, did I sort of, you know, of course it's a work of fantasy on some level. Like I feel like historical fiction is also like the genre of, um, of fantasy. Um, and so I thought, well, have I conflated this like at once very intelligent, but also illiterate woman with, uh, women in my own life. Um, and I'm sure there was some of that. And also was I sort of conflating her with that kind of maddening gaslit feeling or that feeling of it, of helplessness when the fact that something is true is just totally inconsequential. (laughs) And like these sort of, uh, lies and storytelling and self-preservation of kind of like institutions or um, people around somebody end up being so much more consequential than reality or the truth. So I think like that emotionally was something I connected to. And then also I think I, I connected to this idea. There was a, a moment in the book where in the nonfiction book, it's just a tiny detail where her, her neighbor, who had been acting as her legal representative, because women weren't allowed to represent themselves um, to the court. So he asked sort of several years into the trial to be, um, he asked the court if he could be let off, saying that he was sort of too old to do it anymore. And there's something about that, that idea of being, the witness or the the kind of the neighbor basically the neighbor who wants to help but then is also can't quite help it's not quite you know that 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 desire when you see something horrible kind of it's like the when the tornado hits the house next door to yours and and you sort of are a witness and that uh, that interested me ethically too. The kind of way we celebrate this idea of being a witness and being an ally, but then at the end of the day, it's so limited. It's so limited in power. Um, that also interested me and, and ended up coming into the book um, as well. So I think, I think probably all of those things um, led to that that connection to the story. I have noticed in a couple of the early reviews for the book that um, the reviewer likes to start by talking about Trump and Trump <laughs> and Trump's um, insistence that he's been the victim of a witch hunt, which I just was surprised that that seemed like a theme um, in a couple of the reviews that I saw. But it, it 
it was true that when I was reading the book, um, I, I definitely did not have Donald Trump in mind, but I did have in mind some of the frustration that has come from being in a world where what is true, like you're saying, seems pretty much beside the point in the, um, the sort of churning cogs of power and of who bears the consequences of, of, I don't know, social anxiety or social, um, social agita or like political change. There's so much in this novel that's about the way that the, the fortunes of, of a society that are, you know, that is struggling. There are all these talks about like, oh, you know, the, the weather has been bad. The crops have been bad, you know, like things go wrong. And the way that that, for the frustration at that and the fear provoked by that gets funneled onto individual figures like Katerina and the other women who are being accused of witches. And like whether or not that's true is totally beside the point. And I think that there there was something about seeing that drama staged again in a totally different era and place than our own. Nevertheless, echoed some of that frustration of like, but that's not true. But this yeah. isn't true. <laughs> you know, like, doesn't it matter what's true? And the and the the horror of realizing that um, it can it can totally not matter what's true. You know, I very much like kind of connect to the way that you put that, the sort of that, that on on both sides, like both like being the, being the, you know, it's that juggernaut idea and it's just like rolling forward and it's going to crush you and it doesn't like matter. Um, You're, you can't like make an argument to the juggernaut and, and the way that, that, I think that's a feeling that, um, uh, that sort of has like tied it up. That's sort of like been at high tide. Um, but also like in terms of the people who uh, accuse her, that sense that there's just so much misery in her world. There's so much infant mortality. There's so much death of children. There's so much unexplained catastrophes illnesses that people don't understand. Um, so, so, you know, so precarious. She she was pretty much the oldest woman in town because people didn't really live that long. <laughs> and, right. and and so that, that sense of that fear just being this, like, energy that could, like, jettison out kind of, and you're just going to be caught in the splash of it. Like it's not going to go where it's supposed to go, whatever that would mean, wherever it's supposed to go. Um, but it's definitely going to go somewhere because it it's just almost like a law of physics. It's like that fear is a pretty intense energy and, and it's, and it's going on her. And I mean, I guess I feel like for me, the mystery of the current moment is that it's not the people who are suffering the most who are attacking other people through this sublimated um, delusional counter reality. It's actually, 
I mean, everyone is suffering. I mean, everyone in the world suffers psychologically and emotionally mm-hmm. and everything. But I sort of feel like there's a weird kind of superfluousness, superfluousness to kind of American evil. Um, whereas, it, and 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 I'm sure I'm wrong about that. I'm like missing something. But one thing about traveling back in time was I found it easier to think of this people who use her as a scapegoat for their own fears or the people who even the people who are just like pursuing money um even the people who are just like pursuing maintaining their ego I found it a tiny bit easier to think of them as whole real people um because life was so terrifying and precarious and and it, so in a funny way, I felt like my own ethical limitation in the present tense was like trying to be worked out in a past tense. Um, maybe. I mean, these are just like speculations. I feel like when I'm working, I'm just like, oh, this is all I know is like, this is interesting to me. It's like when you love someone, you're not like, I love them because their eyes are so mesmerizing and they you know their jokes are funny like who knows you're just like i don't know i'm like thunderstruck there are other people who tell funny jokes there are other people with great eyes they don't affect me in this way so when i'm writing it's like that it's just okay this really holds my interest but then afterwards i do think okay like what what was that interest what was that um intensity yeah how ha- how has your understanding of what the interest and the intensity was for this project changed since you finished it? I think when I started it, I I I knew it wasn't tenable for a novel to just be furious, um, and so <laughs> I feel like the energy, like going into it, I knew had a lot to do with being really really angry and really furious and really frustrated and feeling really helpless. But I, when I got out of it, I thought it was also like kind of trying to understand something in a way other than everyone in the world is just crazy. They're all just mad. and Cause I feel like that's like my main rubric for the present tense. I'll just be like, these people are nuts. These people, <laughs> that's like all I have to say. There should be like more complexity to it. So I sort of feel like it was trying to like um, add like some levels of understanding to this kind of like mon- mon- monotone of these people are, these people are nuts. <laughs> these people are monsters. Um, trying to add something else to it. So I feel like it started with like, I felt like I was writing about a persecution, um, a real persecution rather than uh, people in power dreaming of being persecuted so that they could sort of have the power of, of both being in power and being out of power. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I feel like it, it exited sort of thinking, how is it that, we allow people to be persecuted, um, even even when we're sort of good-natured people who maybe want to help. I feel like that's sort of the character of her neighbor. How is it that we, how, how does it happen, you know? Um, so I feel like it started from the kind of 
you know, it's sort of unshakable. You know, it's like wrong that she's been persecuted as a witch. So that's not like a learning um, experience. And so I feel like it when I exited it, I was like, oh, I think I was also maybe trying to learn how we allow that to happen or how that does happen or what emotions in people or what kind of human ego needs are nourished by these evils basically i mean i do think it's it's a kind of evil um it's not really located like inside of the people who persecute her but sort of located in the kind of interrelationships of of those people and their own relationship to um power or money or all of the different like translations of power mm-hmm. and of of pain too yes and of suffering and I could, like venture yeah. to add one <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the evil that you see and like so much of this book is in a way to me read about like or is interested in the mechanics of how so- this kind of evil unfolds like it's very slowly and it's piecemeal and it's like you know kind of one person doing a little bit the wrong thing at a time and sometimes people doing a lot of the wrong thing all at once but and so much of that evil seems to be located in people's relationship, not just to power, yeah, but also to suffering, to their pain, and what they feel like they're supposed to do with it or what they're entitled to do with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I sort of feel like that was, a, as they say, like a discovery, a discovery, even though I think, you know, six-year-olds know that. I sort of felt like I had to re rediscover that um, in in the littler characters. Yeah, and all those little um, interviews that we get, or depositions, really. Yeah, those were Um, really fun. Those were some of, I thought, for me, those were the most fun to write. Why? Yeah, I think think because they were, um, well, one, I love the sound. It's like one of my favorite sounds in literature um, and in life is like, I just love the sound of someone not exactly lying to themselves, but just sort of someone either like slightly deceiving themselves in order to maintain something they need, like an image of themselves or whatever it might be, like the sound of like avoiding something or the sound um, of the sound of what's like permissible, impermissible being kind of walked around. Um, and also the sound of like kind of live discovery, because not in each, not in all of the depositions, but in a few of the depositions, I wanted to have like a little moment where it felt like this person becomes actually in the act of questioning open to certain ideas um, about why their life is the way it is. And, and if this woman is like involved in it. So those little moments of opening and then those little moments of, of, Again, like lying to oneself, because um, I sort of feel like that it's, there's almost no people who just lie um, in the book, uh, although there's some. Um, but I, I felt like, well, but, but it, there is quite a bit of like self storytelling or self narration um, that that interests me. I love that. I love that sound. So it's just fun to do it with the different personalities. I feel like one thing that's so important to so many people is the idea that they're a nice person. Um, that's so central to not everyone in the book, but to, and not everyone in the world, but a lot of people. And so 
I thought, okay, well, how does this work? This story that they tell themselves of being a nice person, but at the same time, just, you know, slightly tilting um, towards letting someone who's already vulnerable be more vulnerable. So, Mm. yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about your research process? So one of the things that I noticed was at the end of the book, in the acknowledgments, you list a lot of the books and texts and research materials that kept you company and contributed. And there were a lot of them and they sounded really fascinating. Can you tell me about how you found those materials and made your way through them and thought about incorporating them? Yeah, it was pretty chaotic. Um, I sort of, I kind of, I don't know why, but I I like or value a somewhat chaotic um, research process. So first I was like, well, I want to know everything else that this um, scholar, Ulrika Rublak, has done. And so much of it ended up being very relevant, not surprisingly. So, you know, a book about sort of just um, what sorts of crimes women were accused of in that time period, in that era, era, and how they were handled by the laws. That was like really interesting. And then also she had this kind of amazing book of fashion, like there, where it's just like the journal of a kind of, of a guy who kind of takes the equivalent of a selfie every day. He like notes down like what he wore and what color hose and what event he went to. And just <laughs> like, it's just sort of an amazing artifact that she, she, she put, had put that together too. So like on the one hand, I was learning literally like what clothes someone of a certain class was wearing, but also it's just like so accessible. You just could like get into that moment and get into that person's head because they had this strange journal that feels in some ways so familiar. Um, and then of course, like I actually wanted to learn um, not just like about what grew there and what animals were there, but also sort of how the people of that time period thought of those different um, animals and plants. And so that also, there it was like a kind of wonderful moment for um, for botany, especially in that area. There were a lot of kind of wealthier people who sort of went kind of collecting and cultivating gardens from all over the place. So there are all, there's also a lot of material that is from that time period describing like what strawberry plants are for and what they mean and what they're bad for and what they're good for and what they grow near and what they don't grow near. And so it was just fun. It was a very, very fun. It was kind of like what the crossword used to be to me when I was younger. I just like every, it just, it just held my attention completely. Anything that like touched on her world. So. um that the process was at once chaotic. Like it was a lot of like following, um, you know, the kind of, uh, research notes of other books to see what they cited. Um, so that was like probably the main pathway from one book to another book or from journal, journal articles. But then it was also kind of going to, um, even though it wasn't quite the right time period, I sort of like, just went to the cloisters bookshop and there was a lot of things that were almost, you know, there was a lot of gardening kinds of things that were sort of very old and um, texts about kind of demonology and different ideas of evil at that time. And 
it was just fun. Super fun. I'd like, I hope the next book is also, uh, set somewhere that I get to spend a lot of time just, um, reading. Cause that's my favorite. I always think writing is just like a ever so slightly higher level of reading. It's like basically reading. <laughs> so, um, and it's the reading part that I connect to the most intensely. So it was a perfect fit for me as a project. I was just really happy to be, um, to get to read so much, have such directed reading. Yeah. It sounds like, it sounds like an incredible syllabus. Exactly. I was like, thank you for putting the sports together the past. <laughs> like I'm just like really <laughs> grateful. Um, uh, was there ever a moment in this, in the process of writing this book when you thought, uh Oh, I might be, I might be near that place where my attention is going to move on. You know, that was what was, I guess, like, so magical about this for me. And I had this with my first novel, eight million years ago or whatever. Um, which was that I wrote it like quite quickly. I mean, I've had short stories that sort of like sat around longer than this novel sat around. <laughs> um, and uh, I wrote it, I wrote it, I wrote it in a fever. And so I didn't get to that, like, um, I didn't get to that, that place. I mean, the horrible thing, like the guilty thing is that I think I was one of those lucky people that the pandemic um I wasn't like hurt by it myself and and suddenly I was had I just had more time because I normally I bring my daughter to school I pick her up for school I bring her to soccer I bring I'm always I'm basically on the subway like six or seven times a day and suddenly um I was really able to finish it with just like an extra four or so hours in my in my day that I didn't usually have. So that was also, that also helped with the, with the velocity. It also helped me keep my speed up. Um, so I love, I love when I read something and I feel it has a kind of unity of emotion or a unity of impact. That's not the only kind of book I love, but that is something I register um, in some things that I read. And I think that's one reason sometimes I throw things in the trash is because I sort of like have shifted tone, not because it contributes to holding on to the same unity, but because I'm just like a different person with different interests. So something about this book I felt like had enough uh, velocity and it was uninterrupted enough that I was able to finish it. Hmm. Do you ever go back to something you've jettisoned and try again? You know, I do wish short things. Um, I do wish short things because because I've often I've, I've found with short things that sometimes it's almost that I had the initial impulse and the impulse is still sort of alive or sentient, but that maybe the reason it got thrown away was not because. I changed, but because I like hadn't arrived or <laughs> whatever, like, um, so in that way, it's like a cheesy kind of personal development thing where like something shows up in co-it, but presents itself as important, but it's in co-it and it has to be like 
opened up later. So um, like I recently wrote an essay about my neighborhood and I've, I've, I've wanted to write about my neighborhood um, for years, actually. Um, it was whatever, because I think it's an interesting neighborhood in certain ways. And uh, I always had sort of my start, but I didn't have like the motion. I just had like one main feeling about my neighborhood. <laughs> and I think I was waiting to have like a second and third feeling so it could have a second act and a third act. And uh, that was something I went back to because the pandemic altered my neighborhood so much that I was able to like see um, things about it that I hadn't seen before. It had like a ne- the next act. Um, so it's like that and I actually stole that idea, that emotional idea from, I once asked one of my favorite, favorite, favorite nonfiction writers um, is Ian Frazier. Mm-hmm. And he had this essay a while back about like just driving around. It was like an essay about driving on really boring roads in New Jersey and kind of upstate New York, the Taconic. I mean, just boring, boring roads that he loved. He sort of, for some reason, he loved driving around. And uh, he said he'd always wanted to write about it, but it wasn't until he got into a kind of pretty major pileup, like a pretty, there was like a pretty bad accident and he was sort of stranded on the road for a few hours that he was like, oh, now I know how this essay is going to work. So sometimes I think things can come out of the trash (laughs) if they were like, um, if it wasn't that like, the obsession went away if the obsession hung around but didn't know what to do with itself and then like there's some sort of um change that that reveals something about the obsession and lets it like return lets it have like another act rather than just be one note but i've never done that unfortunately or fortunately um with some of the many i wouldn't call them novels but kind of some of the many kind of 40 page documents I have in my life or even sometimes 110 page documents. So I've never gone back to those. Maybe in 20 years, you will look at them and realize that you were writing a serial book. Exactly. With those documents <laughs> and they all belong the together. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that they're actually like the opus that you didn't know all cohered at the end. I um, hope so. That would be great. I'd love that. Open the file, yeah. Open the file and they're like, wow, there's already 110,000 words here. It would be great. Like everyone, uh, I got a, a pet during the pandemic. It's a cat, and my daughter named her Tamaki. But like all pets, she's like goes by Mockster and Maki Mook and this and that. And she has all these different names, and for some reason, sometimes I call her Moon. And Moon was like the name of the daughter in the novel I most recently abandoned. And I was so annoyed. It was like I was like calling to my cat and then I was like I'm so annoyed I didn't sort of get to write about moon I like couldn't do I was annoyed 
Exactly, because I feel like at one time, at one time you were in love with the idea. Um, at one time it was like a source of energy, and then it became like a source of weight, and that's like a really sad transformation. Right. It is. It's like falling out of love in the way that falling out of love can be so sad and disillusioning. Even if you're the one falling out of love, it's not oh, it's like horrible. you're being left by your book. You're leaving your book, but it feels so um, destabilizing to know that you can be so passionate and invigorated by an idea. And then it turns out just to, and it was not really the idea's fault necessarily. It's exactly. just you. You leave it. You leave it. It's me, not you. It's like so. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, it is sad. It is sad because it's also like, it was as if something was like a warm fire and then it's just like this. And then it, I don't know. It's just, it, it is sad. I'd rather a book left me. That would be an amazing feeling. I'd be like, this book is so great. It just has to break it to me that I'm not the one who's going to write it. <laughs> like, I think that would be like a really great. That would be. Yeah, that would be a totally different set of feelings. Yeah, a different set of feelings. I'd feel sort of like my self-esteem might be hit, but I wouldn't be like the world is empty and barren. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think maybe the last thing that I I know I wanted to ask you was, from the first moment you said what you wanted to talk about is um, how you go looking for your next love. Yeah, I think that, you know, it's, um, I don't know if you do the spelling bee on the, on the New York Times games. Sometimes. Yeah. It's obviously a waste of time, but anyways, I do do it. <laughs> and it's that thing where like, at first there's like a bunch of words you see. Um, but I find like, I don't get like the next level of word. And so the spelling bee I get is, uh, for those who don't waste some time on it, it's like seven letters and you have to make as many words out of them as you can and always use the middle letter. Um, but it's not like you make pro or I don't make progress by like rigorously going through each letter and kind of arranging it as like a kind of, you might write a computer program that would just line up the letters in every possible iteration. It's sort of like if I just like um, stop thinking about it for a minute, I'll be like lenient. Lenient is one of them or whatever. So I feel like (laughs) I wish like I could like rigorously find the next idea just by sort of like going through a series of steps. Um, But I more feel like it's, you know, I found, I found this idea like by pursuing another interest. So I feel like it's more just, okay, like if you are, reading and watching movies and talking to people and going for walks and going to work or whatever it is, you're like making yourself open um, and something will like land on you. So I feel like it's more like, more like you're waiting, you're like a flower waiting to be pollinated (laughs) rather than you're like seeking a mate. I feel like it's like more passive, but I do feel like they're like, things you can do so that you have like a better chance of some pollen falling your way. So that's the way I think of it. That's lovely. It reminds me of what you were saying a few minutes ago about like, I hope my next book is in the same time period as if it's exactly. something that's going like to happen to control. you. As a, yeah. As opposed <laughs> to, it's like, in theory, I feel like a, a lot of people would hear that and say, well, but you're the one who gets to decide what your next book is. Just decide you're writing another book about about the same time period. But um, 
it sounds like you're saying, and I know a lot of people feel like that's not really how it works. Yeah. Although sometimes I am suspicious. I'm like, maybe that's like, since I'm so obsessed with like what lies people tell themselves, I'm like, maybe my favorite lie is that like, I'm not in control. That's like my like favorite necessary um, lie because I'm super attached to it, but it does like describe how I feel. I I definitely feel that way. Mm. What do you, what does that idea give you? The idea, the conviction that you're not in control and you don't have to be in control. I, 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 I think that's an interesting question and I have thought about it. And I think one thing it gives me is, um, it's like I become disinhibited and less, less self-conscious, um, which I think is kind of helpful. Um, cause you know, if I was like really conscious about what like a piece of writing reveals or this or that, you know, all this sort of normal day-to-day kind of social norms would constrict it or confine it. Um, it would be like a, a novel stuck in a cocktail party, <laughs> whereas uh, you don't want to be a novel stuck in a cocktail party. You want to be, you know, a dream or whatever it might be, something that's like much, um, has a better chance of like being um, true or touching on something true or I don't have quite the right word for it. True isn't quite the thing, but it would be, it would be less of a poser. <laughs> you, know, you don't want to feel like a pose. You don't want your book to be a poser. So I feel like feeling like, Oh, it's not even my book or whatever gives it a better chance. Like I remember the first time I like finished a short story that I actually stood by, I was like, Oh, I, I like kind of, I kind of stand by this story. I think part of what was really important to the process was like a friend of mine said, Oh, like I sort of feel like I, cause I, for other reasons, we were talking about um, the grandfather paradox, which is the thing and that comes up in science fiction a lot. Like if you travel back in time and murder your grandfather, then you don't exist and you can't travel back in time to murder your grandfather. And it's, it's you get like stuck in a loop. And my friend said to me, she said, oh, that sounds like the kind of center of a Borges story. That would be like a fun story to write that had that at its like fulcrum. And I, if, it, if it had been my idea, I would have been like, not, I wouldn't have wanted to do it. But I was like, oh, that's Kate's idea. <laughs> so that like made it really compelling to me to sort of not be the owner, or the captain of the story. If you're not the captain of this, I just am ex- excited about this metaphor. If you're not the captain of the story, where are you on the ship? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I know. I think I need to know a bit more about the different positions. Because um, I'm like, am I the skipper? But I'm like, not sure what the skipper does. But I feel like <laughs> you're like the person doing, you're the deck swab and maybe the skipper. And, you know, all the, you're, you're, you're obeying whoever those people are that obey, not a, whoever is on there with Ahead, Ishmael and all his friends or whatever. <laughs> I guess that's who you are. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week.